Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my guest today is Daniel Hershenson. He teaches in the Literature, Cultures, and Languages Department at the University of Connecticut. Daniel, thank you for being on Historically Thinking. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the focus of our conversation today is your new book, uh, The Captive Sea, Slavery, Communication, and Commerce in Early Modern Spain and the Mediterranean, uh, published this autumn by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Now, uh, that's a long title. Uh, there have been worse defenders, however, I should, I should quickly add. Um, but lay people might not get to what's, to my mind, a very provocative juxtaposition of nouns in the subtitle. Um, the book, to my mind, is the best kind of historical revisionism, the kind that we always need. Um, it challenges us to think about um, the past in our head, which is an accepted past, but it's not always quite the way that things worked out at the time. So uh, there's gonna, this is going to be a very unfamiliar uh, stage and set of characters for most English speakers. Uh, the time period in which you're discussing is for lots of people is filled with Henry VIII and the Tudors and all the rest of that stuff. Um, instead, on one side of the story, we've got um, the characters who are the antagonists of Henry VIII in the usual English history story, uh, the antagonists of Elizabeth I. And then on the other side of the story, we've got characters who don't appear much in English speakers' consciousness at all. So let's um, talk about terms and place and time periods. So you're focusing on the early modern Spain and Mediterranean. Um, what do you define as early modern? Right. Um, so defining these, these periods is always tricky and there are different definitions, but I would say one that most historians would sign on is um, the 16th to the 18th century, so let's say 1501 to, to, the, to, to, to 1800. Um, my book focuses on, on the long 17th century, so roughly from the 1570s to 1708. And then the project looks at the Mediterranean, that sea that brings together uh, Europe in the north, Africa in the south, uh, Asia in the east, and the Atlantic Ocean, Ocean in the west. I always think about it as divided into two halves, and it's divided by this non-straight line formed by Italy and Sicily. Hmm. And I am focusing on the western half, on the half on the left. If you if you imagine our map of the Western Mediterranean on a page flipped vertically, like 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 in a notepad, mm -hmm. and We'll start filling it in with countries, start beginning in, in, in the upper uh, left corner and going clockwise. So we have the Iberian Peninsula with Portugal facing the ocean, Spain and moving right eastward to France, Italy turning downwards, southward to crossing the sea to Libya, Tunis, Algiers, and Morocco at the very west uh, part of uh, North Africa. And all those those yeah. North African polities are called collectively the Maghreb, right? They're called collect, collect, collectively the Maghreb, which means in Arabic uh, 
West, the West, <laughs> uh, and it's also one of the names of Morocco. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said that, I, I realized that I should make another distinction between, despite the fact that geographically we call it the Maghreb, we need, we need to distinguish between Morocco, which was more or less an independent uh, state in our period, uh, whereas Algiers, Tunis, and uh, Libya, Tripoli, were semi-independent uh, Ottoman provinces, so part of the Ottoman Empire that, that ruled most of the Mediterranean in the period. So what are the number of slaves, of captives on either side? Because, of course, both Spain, um, and we're going to you, you focus on Spain in the uh, predominantly in the in the book so what are the number of captives of total of of islamic captives of maghrebi captives in spain and what are the number of sort of spanish uh, i guess also italian captives in sicily and sicily and southern italy are still part of spain at this time right and what are they what are the their numbers in the maghreb I, I want to introduce another distinction before sure. answering the question, that Please. between uh, sub-Saharan African slaves in the Mediterranean, so mm-hmm. blacks from sub-Saharan Africa, uh, both in North Africa and in Southern Europe, of which there were hundreds of thousands in the period, yes. and about whom I do not speak, mm-hmm. For and I'll explain my, my rationale behind it. And then... Um, Christian slaves in, in North Africa and in the Ottoman Empire, and Muslim slaves from the Ottoman Empire or from North Africa in Southern Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I make this distinction because, because distance matters, and sub-Saharan blacks could not interact with their families. At least we have no evidence that they ever did. Uh, so slavery for them was permanent. They could never return home. They could never interact with keen exchange messages or anything like that. Whereas for Muslims from North Africa and Christians and slaves in North Africa, that that was always a, they could always potentially do that, and they did it, as as as, as we'll talk about it later on. That's a very the- very helpful distinction. Um, it's easy to talk about slavery in the Mediterranean. It's easy to talk about slavery in, even in America. And to immediately, by that generalization, destroy some very important distinctions, um, which you've just brought back out. Um, The difference between the different types of captives, their origins. um, uh, And you're very interested in the sort of the communication between um, captives and their home communities, whatever it is. So um, what numbers are we talking about? So overall, scholars are talking about two to three million Muslims and Christians enslaved uh, from, say, 1450 to 18 to the first third of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, all of these calculations are extremely problematic. Yeah. Uh, obviously, yeah. uh, the sources we have are rarely serial, uh, they're more anecdotal in nature. When they're serial, they, are, they refer mostly to ransomed people, mm-hmm. so we need to guess from the number of ransomed how many actually were. Uh, but even if we cut it in half, we're talking about enormous numbers, and mm-hmm. in the first 
couple of centuries of the period I'm talking about, there were more people enslaved in the Mediterranean than in, a, in the Atlantic world. Sure. Uh, so... Uh, and that's, and I should say that's, that's only counting this population. That's not counting, again, as you just said, sub-Saharan black Absolutely, absolutely. It's yeah. not counting, we're not looking at the Eastern Mediterranean. <laughs> we're not looking at Eastern Europeans in Egypt or in, in, in modern Turkey and vice versa. Right. Um, we're not looking at the Janissaries, which are, you know, we, we could go on and on and on about varieties right. of slavery and types of slaves in the Mediterranean world. Right, right, right. So and, that, and, and, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, so between, 15, between the mid-15th century and the mid-18th century, there are 300,000 to 400,000 Moroccans and, and, and Turks uh, enslaved in Iberia. There is about half a million enslaved in Italy. Uh, there is about thirty to 40,000 enslaved in Malta. Uh, this doesn't uh, include uh, Sardinia, Corsica, uh, the Balearics or the Canary Islands. <clears throat> um, and then we have around a million or, or more Christians enslaved in the Maghreb, or in North Africa. And this figure doesn't include Christians enslaved uh, in the heart of the Ottoman Empire, so in Anatolia and Little right. Asia, and, and all of these people that you just mentioned. Yeah. Um, or, or people who are Circassians who are sold by the Genoese into slavery in Egypt, or you know, really, you know, completely different types of slaves. But exactly. Let's. So, what sources? I mean, this is <laughs> finding uh, slaves and finding about their lives is difficult in any time or period because they are voiceless people. Um, you've discovered they actually have voices. Um, we know about their voices, but you've, you've had to do a lot of meticulous research to bring out the, who these people are and where they're coming from. So what the, the list of archives that you've gone into is quite long in the back. It's a couple of pages. Um, so describe some of those, please. Uh, so the bulk of my doc documentation is coming from Spain um, and and from very different archives in nature. Uh, mm -hmm. So one of the archives is the Inquisition archive, and there we find mostly uh, cases of uh, captives who converted to Islam during their captivity, and then either were captured by Spanish forces or voluntarily returned to Spain and they had to face the Inquisition and account for their conversion. And these sources are extremely rich because inquisitors wanted to know everything. <laughs> and and we'll get back to that uh, yeah. later, I hope. Yes. And then, and then uh, uh, letters of merchants and of captives, because captives in the Mediterranean wrote and wrote a lot. Yes. Uh, they wrote letters home, they wrote letters to their rulers, to the military, military authorities, uh, which they served before their captivity. Um, I looked at, uh, at um, um, reports of espionage that were uh, penned by captives. Mm -hmm. Who, who, who meticulously uh, daily reported about what happened in the city in which they were captured. Daily? They'd... Sometimes daily, yes, sometimes daily. But they, sometimes they... they would just write, today nothing happened. <laughs> uh, well, they were very conscientious. And I, yes, uh, I, how, how often, uh, out of curiosity, those were, well, we'll get back, we'll get back to that in time, because I, I want to talk about that later, but that's, that's another fascinating uh, way of, yeah, go on. 
Um, then we have letters of uh, pashas and North African pashas or, or sultans writing to the Spanish authorities. Um, and other actors that produced, massively produced relevant documents were members of uh, two religious orders, the Trinitarians and the Mercedarians, orders charged with liberating uh, Christian captives from North Africa. So you have so, to uh, basically put all this stuff together in an enormous haystack and then sort out the various strands of straw according to the right length and order. Thousands of documents. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's pretty insane. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, but great fun on a certain level. Yes, yes, yes. It, yes a, and... The hunt is very fun. Um, so, so you've got an argument. Um, so if you could, um, what is it? Um, so my argument is that, uh, that slavery, that piracy, captivity, and redemption, ransom of captives, uh, shaped the Mediterranean as a social, economic, and political space. Uh, I suggest that we uh, think about the captivities of Muslim and Christian slaves as connected and interdependent, mm -hmm. uh, as captivities that were linked by uh, the interactions between Mediterranean rulers, pashas, sultans, uh, mm -hmm. Christian kings, captives and captors, keen and uh, slave merchants, and the church. And all of this interacted by, through, through an array of documents, mostly written by captives. Um, so the sea was shed, you know, we, usually we think about, uh, I'm talking about, I'm, I'm talking about, uh, I'm using the term region formation to mm -hmm. describe the process that I'm charting. Um, what do you mean by and, that? Right, so usually, usually when we think about regions, we think about uh, geographical entities. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, I don't know, the, the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, but the Gulf of Mexico includes many different countries, right? Mexico, yes. Texas, and Louisiana, and states. Cuba. Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Cuba, the Bahamas. And all of these, country, all of these, all of these entities negotiate, uh, negotiate and negotiated uh, issues of fishing, of oil, of tourism, of, of uh, mobility regimes, of visa, who can cross when and with which kind of permit. Um, so all of this interaction, uh, sometimes the result is a, 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 a more integrated region, and sometimes we, we watch process of disintegration. Mm -hmm. uh, so these processes is what I call region formation, the process by which uh, links across the region become denser, thicker, or weaker. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And it, uh, opposed to this is, um, well, I actually was surprised you to realize that Bradell, uh, the great Ferdinand Bradell, um, the Mediterranean, the age of Philip II, um, he reiterates a thesis that goes back at least to Henri Perrin, uh, probably even farther, of the Mediterranean as a sort of wall between um, Europe and North Africa, that there's a sort of there's an incommensurability. Um, there's a, uh, it's hard to reach across that barrier, um, and you reject that. Well, I mean, he he has this complex position. On the one hand, he talks endlessly as always. About exchange. I should, yeah. I should, we should note. Yeah, he's sort of like he's making the argument about endless exchange, but then he still talks about uh, the Christian and the Muslim block mm -hmm. blocks, um, and he's the one introducing the term uh, the northern invasion uh, by which he refers to the appearance of, of invader invaders in inverted commas from the north uh, the Dutch the English uh, the French uh, from the 1580s 
to the first decades of the 17th century, uh, coming there for purposes of commerce and, and significantly influencing the, the commercial landscape. Uh, now, the factness, the factuality of, of, of the presence of these northerns in the region is undebated. The question is, what do we make out of it? Mm-hmm, what, mm-hmm. what meaning do we assign to it? And historians have uh, thought about it in terms of modernization. Now, what do they mean by that? Right. What do they mean by modernization? Uh, so I think what they mean is, is, is sort of like a rearrangement of the relations between politics or between economy, politics, society and religion. Uh, and more specifically in this context, they suggest that an international setting, including nation states, the Netherlands, France, uh, England, replaced a world of empires, the old monsters of the Spanish and the Ottoman empires. Foreigners substituted local actors. Mm. And perhaps most importantly, impersonal markets substituted uh, religious enmity and violence. Mm. Um, So as opposed to that, uh, and and as opposed to that, I, I insist that you know, this kind of modernization didn't take place in the period we were talking about, and the Northern def- definitely didn't reshape the South. Because it's also an argument that we encounter in, in a multiplicity of contexts, right? The Northern come and they modernize the South. Uh, pick one, any South. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, as I've, word, I've often yeah. quoted um, Jackson Lears, the um, sort of 19th, 20th century American historian. Uh, who likes to say that historians can never appear on a TED talk um, because it's our, it is in our nature to complicate things. And that 15, so we, rather it's other people can say, hey, here's this modernization thesis and do it in 15 minutes. And we get up and say, no, no, no not really. And then we take an hour and a half to explain why not really. And by that time, everyone's left or fallen asleep. So anyway, that, but nonetheless, uh, it's important to complicate things to use that right. as a verb. Right, right, right. So let's let's do a story. Um, uh, you tell a story right in chapter one of Jeronimo de Pasamonte. Um, we can use that story. We can use another one. But let's try to humanize um, some of these ideas. Um, what does his story or someone else's story uh, tell no, us so about? Let's, let's talk about Jeronimo uh, de Pasamonte. So yeah. this is uh, a person who belonged to the lower Aragonese nobility. Yeah. Uh, he fought for the Spaniards in Tunis, in North, Af- North Africa, and uh, got badly wounded there and was sold there with a bunch of other wounded uh, Christian captives to an Ottoman Gallic captain. Yeah, he he, he paid 15 ducats a head um, for him uh, and some other captives. And I, I'm, I'm sorry to ask this question, but um, I'm going to ask you what that is in today's money. But is that a lot? Fifteen. It's very ducats. little. Very it's little. Very huh? little for for a slave. Yeah. So really? these are people that were on 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 deathbed. I mean, this is it was, a it was betting. bargain price. This is this is the dollar general yeah. of, of slavery. Yeah. yeah okay. And uh, he took him to Istanbul. So they crossed the Mediterranean eastward. Uh, there he, he worked for him in the city. Uh, as most slaves, he enjoyed some kind of. Uh, as most slaves in the Mediterranean enjoyed some kind of freedom of movement, he was mm-hmm. free to walk around the city while he was not working. Um, and talking with other Christian captives, which he met there probably in the shipyards, there were you know thousands of Christian captives in in, in Istanbul. He got the idea that uh, that working as a galley slave, who, he would he would have his prospects of regaining his liberty would increase, which is a pretty weird idea. <laughs> I'm glad uh, you think so too. I was 
I, I made a little note there in the margin wondering um, if that was maybe my ideas of galley slaves are wrong, but it does seem like out of the frying pan into the fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, he did. Eventually, I mean, years later, 20 years later, he managed to regain his liberty, but it, it was not, an, it wasn't because he became a galley slave. Um, and in between, he changed hands when the son of his owner was married to uh, the daughter of, of an, an Ottoman high official, and he returned to his previous owner once uh, once the daughter, once one of the owners died there. Uh, so, yeah, let so me just, was, let yeah. me quote you. He traveled with his new master for more than 15 years among, and you know, could use a map when you're um, following this, Tunis, Byzerta, Alexandria in Egypt, the west of the Peloponnesus in Greece, Algiers, and Rhodes. Um, this is peripatetic slavery. Yeah. So slaves were extremely mobile. They were yeah. mobile on, on two levels, on, on the level of the Mediterranean and within cities. Mm -hmm. We describe his mobility within uh, Istanbul, but he also crossed the, crisscrossed the Mediterranean in all directions. So they're part of a moving household. Right. Absolutely. That's, that's a great way of putting it. Uh, they're part of a moving household with, with other slaves, with goods, with people that change position, you know, like his own, his, his master was, was positioned in different cities and he just followed his master. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but an interesting thing looking at his, at his history is first that he changed many hands. Yes. Um, so, you know, just like becoming, becoming a slave doesn't mean that commodification ended there. Uh, it just the beginning uh, process of commodification. Uh, of, commodifi of, becoming, of, of commodification, of being... Of becoming a commodity. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, but it happens again and again and again. Yeah. And after each sale, uh, there is also a process of humanization, of becoming again somewhat, of gaining again what defines uh, humans, right? Freedom of... Uh, of, of, of to, to walk around, uh, to 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 to, uh, to give testimony, to, to become involved in commercial uh, deeds. Uh, so he, so he changed hands several times, and perhaps more interestingly, uh, he wasn't always sold. Sometimes he was given as a gift. Uh, other times he was uh, bequeathed as part of of the, of the inheritance of of a household. Uh, so changed slave. Uh, slaves changed hands in, in, in a variety of ways, and some of these changes were uh, temporal, seasonal. Uh, sometimes they were uh, rented out by their owners per day, mm -hmm. uh, or for the season, for the for the rowing season, for the navigation season. Um, and and this is another thing that his story uh, uh, sort of like brings into relief. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, it's one of the overlooked features of American slavery is slave rentals. Uh, particularly in the Upper South, uh, I'm sorry to bring this back to American history, but that that that's, uh, renting out slaves is extremely important to the slave economy. And it's interesting to see in your book how that's also important to the Mediterranean slave economy. This is actually something that I learned from American slavery. Yeah, uh, yeah that, that, that think about slavery as something which is much broader than the initial moment of sale. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that, that, this, that, that this moment, hides a mountain, you know, a huge uh, world of economic exchange. And, mm -hmm. and, and, um, so yeah. Geronimo, he's a slave for 20 years? More or less. Yeah. So how does, how does he, how's he freed? 
So um, he's, he's working as a galley slaves, and you know, I mean, he, man- he managed to save some money because slaves sometimes received salary, and in other times were engaged in petty commerce on mm-hmm. the galley on which they worked or in the ship in the shipyards during the winter season. Uh, and he interacts with uh, with merchants who eventually provide him with credit. Uh, he manages to buy his own freedom. And again, a very important feature of Mediterranean slavery is that slaves could ransom themselves or be ransomed by others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the prospect of ransom were always there. This, this is this is a very important feature of Mediterranean yes. slavery. Um, so he managed to, to to arrange for credit and he engineers his, his, his ransom. And he then starts his way uh, back to the West, back to Spain. And he left us a, a beautiful uh, autobi- autobiography. Thank God. Uh, well, the, second, thank God. <laughs> the second third of which is dedicated to his slavery. And the last third is dedicated to his attempts to, to be compensated for his slavery, to be compensated for the service that he, the salaries uh, for the service uh, which he served his king as a soldier. And he's, you know, walking around, showing his wounds, carrying his captivity papers, and uh, and suffering, and that's a and so uh, manumitted freed slaves who had been in the Maghreb or in the other parts of the Ottoman Empire, they would then seek um, some sort of financial recompense from the king of Spain or their their ruler. Well, many many of them lost their liberty as as soldiers uh, or sure. as sailors, like serv- for the king, yeah. like famously, I guess Cervantes. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. And then they often write from their captivity, they start writing from their captivity, from their enslavement. They write back home and say, you know, I served you for so and so months, for so so many months, and I, I lost my liberty in, in this or that battle, and, and I'm asking for the salaries owed to me in order to, to obtain my liberty. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or they ask, more interestingly, sometimes they ask the crown for a Muslim slave owned by the crown uh, so they could be exchanged with that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about ransoming. Um, you have a very nice, um, you have a depiction of um, a, a sculptural relief called La Redención de Cautivos, um, the redemption of the captives, and, and you sort of take that apart. So if it's nothing is better on a podcast than describing a piece <laughs> of visual art. So um, go ahead and let's, let's, let's try to do that and, and unpack that metaphor um, for the, uh, the history that it represents. So this is this is a high relief, uh, three-dimensional high relief that depicts a scene of uh, of ransom. Uh, on on the right side, we see two Mercedarian friars negotiating with the Turk, sitting on a cushion in front of them. The 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 ransom of uh, the redemption of three Christian captives that stand miserably chained behind the Turk. Uh, there is a pile of money on on the table that separates the a really big pile of money too. Big pile of money, yeah. but the greedy Turk is unhappy, and the mercenaries are adding uh, more money to the pile. The captives look look extremely miserable, and you know. So on the one hand, I mean, this is a representation of captivity and and of a scene of a ransom. But visual representation, textual representation. They're always more than a representation. They're always more than a description. You know, last night I was sitting here on the sofa watching TV with the dog next to me on the sofa. Suddenly my girlfriend entered and she said, honey, the dog is on the sofa. <laughs> she, she was not describing a scene. She was giving me an order. Get the dog <laughs> off the sofa, right? And, uh, so texts, uh, images, they're always more than what they describe. Mm-hmm. Uh, one argument, one extra argument that this image makes is... Um, 
the only way to redeem those Christian souls, because for the church, this was about redemption of souls, not the, the ransoming of bodies. The only way to redeem these Christian souls was through the labor of the, of the Trinitarians and the Mercedarians, and hence the believers need to contribute alms for this uh, national religious project. This is, this is the basic argument that, that this relief is making. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we understand that my girlfriend gave me an order to get a dog off the sofa because we can imagine the context. We know something about the context, and the context is, is what we need in order to, to disentangle these images. And once we start looking at, at conflicts and debates in Spain in the period, we see that there are sort of like two camps, one that uh, the pro-redemption, pro-ransom camp, and another one which opposes ransom and suggests to use gunpowder and galleys to save slaves and end piracy. Mm-hmm. Do you, and there's, there, they certainly see that this is, um, there, there certainly must be a way of, uh, a group that sees this as just a way of perpetuating uh, the captive system uh, by paying for um, slaves or paying for these essentially hostages. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. So the sort of like the military party, the one that supports ending the, this, 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 this problem with military might, mm-hmm. is claiming basically by paying for, for the ransom of captives, we just perpetuate the system. Sure. The, the North African are just capturing more and more. And, you know, we exhaust all the silver we import from uh, Latin America by sending it to North Africa in return for in return for people who are mostly sick, old uh, and unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's that's these are their arguments, which is interesting because in the relief, the slaves look woebegone and downcast, but they look very healthy. I mean, they're exactly. they're they're exactly. they're very built, they're very ripped. Exactly. Um, this is another. So this is another. This is perhaps the second argument that the relief is making. It, it participates in this debate between parties pro ransom and against ransom by saying, by ransoming captives, we actually participate in the imperial project. We are ransoming able, strong captive that can contribute to the empire. Um, yeah. Now, how does, um, how, do some of the, how do some of the historical sources correct or contradict the message of the, of the sculptural relief? The, first of all, the, the Trinitarians and the Mercedarians, I should say, I mean, if those uh, Catholics who have experienced an appeal for the St. Vincent de Paul Society, and Vincent de Paul was one of them, wasn't he a Trinitarian or a Mercedarian? Or... He was involved in the ransoming of captives. He was, but he actually established. So you're talking about the French. Vincent, Vincent, yeah, he's Vincent, a Frenchman. Right? Yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. So he established. Uh, uh, this is this is a fascinating history. We're not we're not going to to, to enter into it. <laughs> but he was very active in Algiers, uh-huh. and his men and the, and the Trinitarians constantly fought each other about issues of jurisdiction, who have the power over captives, who have the power to communicate with the Algerian authorities, and whatnot. And basically, these were proxy debates for debates uh, between the Spanish king and the French king. <laughs> so, but, we, it, we, but that's the idea, that this, there's a long tradition, Catholic charities in some ways, in, interestingly, how modern Catholic charities can trace roots back to this activity. Um, but leaving that aside, um, it wasn't only friars who negotiated and ransomed captives. Merchants also were involved in it. And I was fascinated to see that that was a condition by the crown uh, that that allowed merchants to trade with the Maghreb if they engaged in such activities. Right. So in theory, canon law prohibits trade with the infidel, with with Muslims. But the king can authorize ad hoc permits for merchants, allowing them to, to, to trade with the Maghreb for, for a limited time period and for a limited sum of money, uh, in condition that they also uh, ransom Christian slaves. 
so ransoming Christian slaves became an excuse that justified trading in the Maghreb. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the king, despite his very pious uh, appearance and support of canon law, benefited from from these permits because it 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 taxed the merchants. They had to pay ten percent of of all the deals that they engaged in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> so this is a situation in which you know all parties speak in two vo- voices, yeah. uh, for and against uh, ransom, for and against trade with North Africa, and, and yet the the the. I think that this whole the communication that you highlight this and sort of really extraordinary incessant stream of letters going from North Africa and and from Spain and, and back from Spain to North Africa is facilitated by these continual going to and from of the merchants. Right, right, for the merchants and of the friars. And the friars, and, yeah. And, and, you know, this goes back again that we so much think about, about slavery in terms of American slavery or American slaveries that it's really hard to understand that like slavery is elsewhere very different and in the Mediterranean slaves constantly wrote and sent messages back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are talking about a period in which the majority of the population is illiterate, so slaves had to rely on, on, on priests on, or on those present that could read and write. Mm-hmm. Uh, slave masters encouraged their slaves to write home because this was the only way in which they could uh, plan a ransom. They had mm-hmm. to provide their king with details about their place of uh, of, of, of captivity, uh, of how much their captivity, or the, how much would the ransom fee be, or uh, in case of exchange of slaves, uh, where is the slave that their master was interested in is, is in Spain, uh, who owns him, etc., etc., etc. And ransom slaves and redeeming friars and merchants, they all served as couriers for the letters of, of the slaves. And the letters themselves provide us with much information about this system of communication because most letters started with, I've already sent you so-and-so letters and didn't receive a response and, mm-hmm. and my heart is, is, is broken, etc., etc., etc. So we see that, that you know, letters went in different directions. Captives also always uh, multiplied the copies that they sent in order to increase the chances that the letters would, would hit their uh, destin- destination. Um, and it's quite incredible because we see ordinary people uh, negotiating with each other. We see widows from Algiers and from Mallorca exchanging letters. Mm-hmm. In order to ransom their sons, uh, the son of the Mallorcan widow is enslaved in, 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 in Algiers and the son of the Algerian is enslaved in Mallorca. And they both exchange letters and communicate with the local rulers in order to facilitate the exchange of, of the two boys. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you, you, you point out the involvement of women in the exchanges for when you think about it, for obvious reasons, it falls on often falls on women whose husband or son, um, they might be a widow whose son has been captured, they might be widowed or as it were, widowed by their husband being taken prisoner, and therefore it falls on them often to engage in these negotiations. Right, 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 right. So, 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 and, and you know, this, uh, like, with the, the problem of the sources, the, the unequal representation of women and, and, and of men in this system, women mostly emerge uh, from the documents and as ransomers. We know very little, mm-hmm. unfortunately, about women that were enslaved because they, 
they disappear. They yeah. they don't leave uh, archival representation. They often are uh, incorporated into household in their place of captivity and leave very very little mark uh, in the archives. Briefly, before because um, I want to go back to some of these aspects of communication community. Um, you point out the extraordinarily difficult economics <laughs> of negotiating with um, someone who is your enemy. Um, commerce in this case is not necessarily bringing to get people together in a sort in, in mutual self-interest. There is obviously mutual self-interest involved, but it's sort of mutual self-interest with one hand on their sword the entire time. Um, th there's that. There's also the really fascinating question of how do you re release someone if they haven't paid their ransom fully. I mean, most, as you say, do have to pay their entire ransom before they're released. But there's also a very interesting um, sort of a game theory uh, problem there. If I give them the full money for the ransom, won't they just ask for more? And so on and so on. Right, right. So, so I mean, you know, we're talking about captive subjects of, of, of enemy countries. Yes. And yet those enemy countries respected the world of ransom by which i mean that if a slave owner in algiers allowed his uh, mallorcan slave or Bar barcelonian slave to 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 walk home there was without paying the ransom uh, or promising to pay it once he, he will get back to barcelona there is a good chance that the uh, authority the catalan authorities the authorities in barcelona would arrest that freed captive until he pays his debt Hmm. Uh, just that's just that fascinating. This is fascinating. Yes, it is, yeah, and, it, is, and it, it points out the whole. It really, I think, emphasizes your point about region formation. That there's this cultural institution which transcends uh, regions, religion, that to which they all pay respect. It's a, it acts as, in the best tradition of you know Durkheim. Um, it basically acts as a guardrail, um, which con conditioning the uh, the actions of those within it. And these institutional uh, links are formed from below because yes. who, who started to, the people that initiated them were humble captives. They yes. were not like high officials. Yes, exactly. Uh, it's just fascinating. Um, we, can, we can think about it in terms of diplomacy from below. Yes, it is diplomacy. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Um, how, um, how do they maintain these lines of communication? You've, you've touched on that a little bit, but how it's just extraordinary that they were able to to get these back and forth. So how did a letter get from the Maghreb to say a town in the mountains of Aragon? So first there are several um, Spanish and French and Portuguese uh, colonies in North Africa, in the North African uh, littoral, uh, that are very close to to North African cities, to North African Muslim cities. Uh, I say in the book that in a way, Mallorca was closer to Algiers than it was to Madrid. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and yeah. Algiers was closer to Mallorca than it was to Istanbul. Mm -hmm. um, so the short distance, um, uh, the, 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 the dense mobility of, of merchants and friars and freed captives and enslaved captives uh, meant that information circulated constantly, that information reached uh, ports in the Western Mediterranean on, on a daily or on a weekly basis. Um, and, and we have descriptions of captives arriving uh, and arriving and like, looking for the person they need to deliver the letter to. This is an illiterate, an illiterate society. They, they, they give the letter to the person, to the addressee, who gives it to someone else because they cannot read. 
And that person reads read it to an entire group and they all remain stunned to discover that their dear father or uncle converted to Islam mm-hmm. in Algiers. And so this is, the letters are always a public act. It's yeah, important to emphasize. Often, yeah. the, the, I think the, the dictation of a letter to someone who's literate when, when you're by a captive, it's going to be done in front of other captives. Oh, probably, most likely. Most likely. Yeah. yeah, it's hard. To, I mean, it's hard. Even in any type of slavery, it's hard to get away from other slaves. It's uh, you're surrounded by other people. Uh, and then it's going to be when it gets to that village in the mountains of Aragon. It's going to be once again. It's going to be almost certainly read to a group of people. Most reading is always allowed, and to involves others. Um, you know, right. And you and you and you asked about the maintenance of this uh, communicational uh, networks, and yeah. perhaps uh, another part of the answer lies in the fact that captives didn't only write uh, for reasons of ransom. Sometimes they wrote to provide uh, home authorities or home communities or home institutions with information about other captives mm-hmm. yeah. in, 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 around them. Um, and this is extraordinarily important to communal life. As you point out, if, uh, if someone's been widowed, um, they need to know that. For what reasons? I mean, a wife is much better. As a wife whose husband is a captive is much better as a widow. She can, she can uh, become involved in economic transaction, uh, or selling property, or or remarrying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for that reason, we have sometimes wives who falsify documents <laughs> suggesting that their husbands died in captivity. Uh, but then again, the density of communication in some cases uh, fails such uh, such attempts because the husband hears about it from his captivity, sends the word the word back home, and the Inquisition is is punishing the woman for bigamy. <laughs> because there's also there's an economic cost um, to not only uh, not getting the I guess the dowry that you would receive if your husband died. Um, I, forget the, I forget the term now that you that's used. Um, there are several uh, matrimonial gifts, and the dowry is one of them. One of them, yeah. um, <clears throat> but that that would only be released upon death of the husband. Exactly. And, exactly. and, and similar similar arrangement exists in the Muslim side. So, sure. like a Muslim wife whose husband was enslaved in Majorca, she there is a term, you know, mafkud, uh, uh, which means abs- absent absent in the context of war, mm-hmm. uh, and it's only after proving that your husband died that you can start thinking about what to do with the household, uh, selling property, remarrying, etc. And for Christians, there's an obligation to then start setting aside money, isn't there, to redeem the sort of family member? Right. And, and so there's, there's, an, there's, an, uh, there's a really a strong economic cost to having a family member a captive um, really, uh, that, that yeah, it, can, it can destroy families. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, and, families and, of fishers or, or just like, you know, our agricultural laborers, peasants, I mean, it can destroy them. And it, and of course it fragments the community. Um, so do renegades. Um, what is the Spanish word for renegade? Is it the cognate? Eh, renegado. Yeah. Well, so what does that really mean? Renegade is someone who converted to Islam in the context of captivity. Okay. Um, which, of course, is horrifying in a religious sense, but it's also horrifying in the rupture it brings to the community, even though that person is a renegade across the sea. Right. And, and the fact was that 
thousands of Christi- Christian captives converted to Islam. So there were thousands of renegades in North Africa, uh, partly because Islam was much more liberal than Christianity, mm-hmm. and renegades could develop incredible careers in the Ottoman or the Ottoman or the Moroccan administration. Uh, once they converted, they could become pashas or fleet admirals, or you, you name it. I mean, really incredible careers. Uh, but that had, that influenced a significantly communal tissue because those people had to be excluded from the community. Yes. Um, and the question is, how does the community discover who converted and who didn't? And how does that work? So you, you, you say some people just wrote letters back saying, I converted to Islam. Well, first, first time people wrote back and like trying to maintain kinship relation with their dear ones, refusing uh-huh. to give up on, 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 on effective ties with with you know, with family members. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some cases, other captives wrote, you know, so-and-so converted, and he should be punished for that. Um, and this is also fascinating because that positions captives, enslaved captives, as people with the power to give legal testimony, huh. uh, vouching for another person's religious subjectivity, religious identity. Uh, so captives also have had a legal voice in this system. Um, system in which slavery was also a communication system. And um, there's also, you, you discussed the severing of family honor. Could you, I mean, is that what I think it is? I mean, the, the just simple, the shame in a small um, early modern community of having a son or a, or a husband who is converted to Islam. Yeah, so so that was that was a stain on the family on the family owner. Families try to to either silence it or distance themselves from from the converted kin. And this is why some of these renegades wanted to to maintain kinship ties, had to be you know to use to be very smart in the rhetoric that they employed in their letters back home to 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 leave things sort of like to somehow like suggested that they converted because that I mean so there is the question of like how to frame this story of conversion mm-hmm. I was forced to convert I was brutally forced to convert even though we know that you know I mean conversion was was sort of like we can think about it as, as a continuum uh, on one end of which people were brutally forced to convert and another another the other end people converted because of a variety of reasons and uh, more mobility uh, professional career uh, you, na- you name it. Mm-hmm. So um, we've discussed, uh, we've covered a lot of the book, uh, not all of it. We're running, we're over time. Um, could you um, basically describe what you mean by the political economy of ransom? I mean, I know it's a, it's a hard to give an elevator speech about this. It's a <laughs> tremendous task. Um, but uh, what do you mean by that? By, by that, I mean that in order to understand how the, the, how the market, the ransom market operated, we need to uh, uh, to explicate the role of politics, um, society, and religion. I'll give you, I'll just focus on religion to simplify sure. things. Absolutely. Uh, so most historians said, you know, the, the price of a captive, the value of a captive was determined by their uh, gender, uh, class, wealth, uh, status, age, um, and the imagined ability of their kin to pay ransom. Mm-hmm. This is true. But this 
cannot explain the entire story because the commodities we were talking about, captives, were human commodities who had the power to manipulate their own value by uh, converting or they could be converted by force by others. Mm -hmm. And conversion meant that they stopped being a commodity because when a Christian converts to Islam, first he becomes a community member, a member in the Islamic community, which Mm -hmm. wouldn't sell him back to Christianity. And second, uh, the Trinitarians and the Mercedarians are not redeeming Muslims. Um, so that person, so the, the, the political economy of ransom is a system that allowed for the violent insertion of individuals into networks of exchange, but it also allowed for uh, complementary mechanisms to, to remove people from network, networks of exchange, and conversion was one such mechanism. Mm-hmm. So this is an example how we cannot understand, the, there was no impersonal, purely economic market. We cannot understand economic, economy in this context without accounting for, for extra economic factors. Yeah, this is not going to be solved by econometric equations, the, this, exactly. this economy. Um, humans, yeah, uh, that's lovely. Um, what else? <laughs> well, I, I mean, this is... Um, it's long ago and far away. Um, if the past is a foreign country, um, well, this is even more foreign and they do things very differently there. And oftentimes, um, I'm most curious about the, um, often not so much, um, explaining the past to the present, uh, but making the present seem sort of odd. And I'm wondering, um, if, if you resonate with that, you don't have to. Um, what so, what yeah. what what are the ways in which um, this has relevance to our current moment, or what ways in our does our current moment um, does sort of modern conception to the past, or are we just odd? Let, I'll answer it first. Let me ask you a question because in one of the emails you mentioned this quote, which I love, but I yeah. don't know where it is from. The task of the historian I, is might, not simply to explain the past to the present; it is to make the present strange. It might be me. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know if I came up great. with it or if, uh, if I got it. This is great. I, yeah. And, it, uh, and the present is always strange because it's contingent. It didn't have to happen this way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so I mean, so I think, you know, one, one of the things that I hope one can take from the book is the stress on contingency rather than on intentionality. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tend, you know, to think about actions as the results of the, of intentions, but often, Actions are, are the unintended results of, of very complicated negotiations. Um, and this is, this is, I think this is one of the, of the points I, I hope the book is making. Um, the other is that we tend too easily to divide the world uh, along religious and ethnic and racial lines. And it just, doesn't work so so uh, neatly and and you know like we, we look at this world that I'm describing and the Christ, the the religious divide is constantly broken by Christian Muslim coalitions that that face other Christian Muslim coalitions uh, struggling over the ransom of this or that captive or 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 for different reasons. Yeah, you mentioned I think pages one ninety one ninety one. That there's a sort of idea, uh, really an ex post facto idea of ethnic cleansing, quote unquote, and then also of uh, religious unification, quote unquote. Um, 
we believe that uh, the Moriscos were expelled from Spain and that was it. There was no Arabic, there was no Arabic influence, there was no Islamic influence in Spain, but that's not true. Um, likewise, we might believe that uh, nationalist historians in North Africa might want to downplay the existence of lingua franca um, so that uh, we get to the point where we say to ourselves, hey, how did they talk in the Mediterranean? We, it's, a, it's like a forgotten, it's a forgotten part of history, a, a sort of a way that people kind of communicating to each other uh, the entire, through the entire Mediterranean. Or we are then surprised to find that there are Christians scattered, through, well, scattered, more than scattered throughout North Africa. Um, and they weren't sort of relics from three, uh, from 650 either. They were more recent uh, varieties of Christianity. So uh, we whitewash those or we, we sort of um, erase them uh, from inside the lines of the coloring book. Yes, I mean that's I think another another direction that the book is 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 pointing at is exactly what you that you just described is rethinking the continuous presence of Islam in de-Islamicized Spain, mm -hmm. uh, which at the beginning of the seventh century expelled the those Muslims that were forced to convert to Christianity and their descendants. Mm -hmm. Despite their conversion, they were expelled of Spain, mm -hmm. um, but then they were reinserted into it in the form of 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 Muslim slaves, mm -hmm. of freed Christian captives who spoke Arabic and kept interacting with their former uh, Muslim owners, and with uh, diplomatic interactions between Spanish and, and Muslim authorities. And on the other side, um, you know, Christian churches there that served the captives but remained part of, 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 of the North African tissue. And we need to account for for their presence, for, for the presence of, of, of Christian art, artistic elements uh, in the Maghreb, and the lingua franca, that Romans dialect that uh, was spoken between people, between Mediterranean people, used, which used it to interact one mm -hmm. with another. Um, we alluded to this earlier, but I think to my mind now, having finished one of the really interesting features of this book for any who's interested in any sort of history. Uh, we often talk about doing the movement to do history from the bottom up, but um, I'm not sure that we actually go that far in doing that. Um, and uh, even the people who think they are. What we've got here is, um, as you pointed out earlier, there's this way in which imperial diplomacy is actually diplomacy from the bottom up. Um, and that's a really, I think, radical, I think, but also... Uh, a demonstrated um, assertion that you make in the book. Um, there's a lot of, um, well, I don't want to use too democratic language here, but it's almost voting. Uh, people are voting by their feet, by their uh, letters, and by their uh, ransoms to direct the way that um, both pashas and kings are engaging in with each other. Yeah, yeah, and, and so and 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 that and that goes back to the idea of perhaps of region formation. Yeah, and and the, the integration of the region and the fact that the Mediterranean became became an exper experiential scale for the people living around it, and it became an effective horizon. One hated, but one, you know, one. But it became an effective horizon because your kin were captured on the other side and you exchanged letters with them. Um, um, 
sorry. So <laughs> no, I, 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 um, I, um, is there anything else you'd like to, uh, conclude with as we wrap up? Yeah, I think we sort of like covered everything. <laughs> okay, then. Um, my guest today has been Daniel Hershenson. He's the author of The Captive Sea, Slavery, Communication, and Commerce in Early Modern Spain and the Mediterranean. Um, Daniel, thanks very much for being on Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me here. Thank you so much. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rodat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 